0: Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today's conversation is going to be a little bit different than our usual clinical discussions, but it's just as important, and that's ensuring that we are effectively communicating with our patients. Obstructive sleep apnea is a complicated disorder, and its diagnosis and treatment involves many different providers. It's important that we're all on the same page, providing clear and concise patient education. Today's guests are Dr. Rebecca Robbins and Dr. Suzanne Burdish, who recently analyzed 20 pages of patient educational information and found that most of it is difficult to understand. Dr. Robbins is an instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and an associate scientist in the Division of Sleep and Circadian Disorders at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Burdish is a sleep physician and an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, and she is clinical director of behavioral sleep medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Thank you both for joining us
1: today. Thank you so much for having us, Seema. Excited to be here. Yes, Seema, thanks so much for hosting us today. Great to be here. So Rebecca,
0: you reached out because you are very enthusiastic about OSA education.
2: So tell me about your research in this area. Thank you so much. I um, Yes, I am enthusiastic about this topic. <laughs> and you and I first met because I was so taken by the work that you're doing on this podcast. Um, and so we reached out originally for, uh, to, to organize a panel at last uh, year's American Academy of Sleep Medicine meeting. And we just had a, a, such an exciting uh, conversation on that panel about how to communicate about sleep and sleep disorders. It was great. And, and I loved how engaged the audience was. And I think I learned
0: probably more than I shared from that panel.
2: No, it was it was really great. And we had a patient um, kind of advocate. So I uh, really enjoyed that discussion. And um, and yes, I, I'm really passionate about this topic. I actually got my PhD in a department of communication and marketing. So um, I'm kind of unique in sleep that I, I use, I think, really critically about how people understand sleep information and recommendations and sleep disorders information and how importantly they, um, we can develop evidence-based interventions that nudge and navigate people towards the recommended behavior or care in the case of sleep disorders. And I do that by drawing on my background of kind of new and novel communication methods of so thinking about social media or um, as just one example of a dissemination channel, but then thinking also really deeply about what information do people need to act on our recommendations? Mm -hmm. And so uh, then that's where the kind of art meets science of um, health communication, which is kind of my field specifically in health marketing. But how do we draw on techniques that communication specialists or or even marketers would use to otherwise sell people products? How might we learn from those tools to Persuade sleep and circadian uh, rhythms and sleep disorders information um, to people to patients uh, individually, but then also to groups of people in either work settings or community settings. Um, so those are really my passions um, and my and kind of drive my research.
0: So what were the most common materials
2: you found? I mean, where were these located? These uh, the the paper that um, Susie and I published in ATS Scholar. We rounded up a number of um, of, of patients and asked them and and also providers, mm. where do you find information about OSA? And so we identified the kind of the most common uh, sources of information, and they were largely web based flyers, websites, um, bi- websites that had videos. And what we did is we analyzed the, we kind of put them through the ringer of uh, several validated batteries to assess the clarity of communication, the understandability of the information presented, and we found that these commonly accessed materials weren't terribly clear, and um, they they really didn't score too well on some mm-hmm. of these validated batteries. So, um, lots of opportunity to develop, you know, increasingly understandable and clear information. So
0: Susie, what are some of the barriers that our patients face when trying to access medical literature?
1: So that's a very important, I think, and complex answer, Seema, um, because it arises for not just in terms of knowledge and basic understanding, but also the context. So if mm-hmm. you think about how our patients receive information, you know, there's sort of um There's the baseline knowledge, you know, things of numeracy, how well they understand numbers, their reading level, um, how they're able to access information, where they get information from and how they trust it. And that those can all be broken down into, you know, other barriers. Can they access information in their own language? So in some of the work we've done with patients, um, we find that patients with sleep apnea who speak Spanish often have trouble finding information in in Spanish that's available. Um, And then if you think about all of our treatments um, that we use in sleep, even medications, which seem very simple from a behavioral perspective, there's instructions that they need to read. They need to not just be able to read the instructions, but understand them and then adapt them from their daily life. And people can have um, breakdowns of understanding or access to that information on a basic level. But then when we think about the healthcare setting, it's even more complicated than we think about basic reading or numeracy levels because people are um, anxious, mm. um, which interferes with our understanding. You can be stressed out. And if you think about something like a CPAT machine, you know, there's hundreds of little directions you need to understand. And so patients face not only sort of, you know, what might might call these um, you know, trait like Barriers mm-hmm. that they have, but also the context and the amount of information that they need, um, because they're really, especially with sleep apnea, treating their own disorders. I often make the parallel to patients with diabetes who we see who need to understand how to measure their glucose levels, right. be able to read it, understand it, know how to dose, you know, their their insulin accordingly. You know, what foods to eat and not eat, and you know, using CPAP, which was the focus of this project primarily. Uh, is, is as complicated as, as that. And so there can be gaps in the information a lot of different places. Um, and so there are sort of numerous barriers that that add up over time that make receipt of evidence-based practices really limited and restricted for patients that vary a lot um, across the patients we see and are also influenced by the changing context in terms of telemedicine delivery mm-hmm. of of. Uh, treatments for sleep apnea.
0: So, So for this project, you specifically queried people and you asked them what the resources that, you know, where are they getting their education from? But is there another way? Like, how do we know what
1: patients are actually reading other than directly asking them? So I don't don't think we know other than directly asking Mm. people where they get their information from because everybody's where people get information um, differs and it's also very varied. And I think one one interesting thing about this project is we conducted a lot of these uh, initial focus groups with patients with sleep apnea across the United States. Concordant with the COVID uh, pandemic. Mm. So, people were spending lots of time um, accessing information because health information, because they wanted to know about this novel virus and figure out how they're going to be safe and make decisions in their daily lives about how they can pr- protect themselves. Um, and so, we gave people, um, we asked people where they got information from. And we we also gave them examples of information and talked to them about how useful it was, things they liked or didn't like about the information, um, and think about other, you know, not just beyond their sleep disorders, but other types of ways they seek information and not just how they seek it, but who they seek it from, and how they also trust that information they receive.
0: So is health literacy something that you can objectively measure? I mean, is it something that parallels overall literacy levels or is it its own thing?
1: So that's a great question. And there is obviously some parallels with overall literacy and health literacy in terms of who's at highest risk for having lower levels of, of health literacy. You know, there mm-hmm. there are um, there are higher proportions of people with lower health literacy who for, are from more socioeconomically disadvantaged populations who are also at higher risk of having general low literacy. But then there are other groups we may not think about as obviously, you know, a lot of older adults also have low levels of health literacy, mm-hmm. um, for a variety of information for a variety of reasons. Um, that we don't think about. And in terms of measuring it, there's actually a battery of different tools that have been developed to assess um, health literacy that can be used. Um, And there's actually, you know, the AHRQ and some other national websites have a list of of some of those um, assessment tools that have been developed. Um, And some we're actually using in our own clinical research um, to try to assess this for for some of the patients we're adapting um, behavioral interventions for insomnia for Mm. currently. Um, but I think it's also important to recognize that it's not, it, it is a, it's a dynamic trait uh, that people, that people have in terms of the context. So, mm-hmm. you know, I can liken it to, you know, I'm a physician mom and I have a group of physician mom friends that whenever our kids get sick and it could be a minor injury or even a cold or a fever, we all text each other because <laughs> you know, emotional and stressed and, you know, can't influence our judgment, and so if you're a pa- you know picture from a patient perspective, receiving a diagnosis of you know sleep apnea again because that was the focus sleep disorder in mm-hmm. this case. You know, it's disorder that makes people tired, it uh, makes people sleepy. It um, you know it's associated with lower cognitive function. So there, um, so even if they have a you know highly educated people, they're already in a setup to not be able to receive information as well and probably understand it. And then the stress of the medical visit, you know, you could be running late, you could be stressed out about knowing that there's some association with sleep apnea and heart disease, mm. and just the amount of information you receive, you know, when you receive a diagnosis of sleep apnea. When you're learning about all the different treatments and way it can affect you, it's just it's just a lot of information for anyone to absorb in the context of that medical visit also makes it you know difficult to receive the all the information to understand it. And I think that's why it's really important to figure out, you know and do do the work as Rebecca described of, figuring out what are interventions and interventions in a different way i think you know physicians usually think about it in terms of like how to treat a disease these are these are communication or dissemination interventions to figure out how do we how do we get people to use this information and and thereby actually use these effective treatments better over time So what about patients,
0: though, who have higher literacy levels? So I'm thinking, you know, at at APSS this year, I actually met a handful of patients who wanted to learn more about their sleep disorder. And, you know, one was a veterinarian, and they all seemed really engaged and really intelligent and very knowledgeable. And so should we have information available at various literacy
2: levels it's a great question, Simon, uh, thinking about developing materials that will be appropriate for kind of each individual. If you picture a graph and you kind of model the reach of an intervention or a message. And so from one to potentially, you know, hundreds of, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of people on the X-axis and on the Y-axis, you model the tailoring of that information. And so if you think of people along that spectra, like being able to give one person the perfect information is is so easy, right? Because it's Mm -hmm. often in a one-on-one interpersonal kind of coaching relationship or physician-patient relationship. You can understand what that person's barriers are, what their knowledge gaps are, if they have self-efficacy, if they don't, and then tailor your recommendations accordingly. But then as Susie talked about, you know, behavioral interventions that go to increasingly larger numbers of people, it's harder for each of those people to, you know, reach them or have the maximum benefit or you know get exactly the information that they need and so that's kind of a trade-off that I often think about um, you know the the reach versus the um, the tailoring of the information because mm-hmm. in a perfect world we'd give everyone exactly what they need right right <laughs> um, but of course you have to do the very best that you can um, with what you have when you think about reaching more and more people and I love the the concept of health literacy and um, it's, it's such a beautiful construct because it's not only attitudes or knowledge about a behavior, but it's also your belief that you're able to act on that information. And that last piece is so important because... All of us could probably attest to the fact that if you just have knowledge, you know, if we inundate patients with information, but don't make sure that they walk away and feel, you know, empowered to act on that, you know, okay, I got this, then we might be leaving a lot of people, um, you know, without quite the necessary resources to uh, to reach the goal. And especially as Susie mentioned, there are so many barriers and so many challenges, especially with you know with OSA. New patient getting the treatment, making sure the mask fits, and all of the iterations to you know, get them on track takes a lot of work. And so, focusing on health health literacy is is exciting and to <laughs> potentially overcome some of those barriers. i
1: just to chime in and say, and I think that really highlights the importance, um, you know, of, of why we work together as teams with people with diverse mm. expertise and trying to you know harness you know the skills. Like Rebecca has in health communication, and and think about you know getting getting the best message out to help the most number of patients, whether it's on an individual or public health um, level. And that we you know we really think as a field need to think broadly outside of just sleep researchers, right? Because those trained traditionally in sleep, we can't do this alone, and we need to think creatively and multidisciplinary wise about how to how to create the best care environments for our patients. And I I just wanted to briefly note that, you know, in the other thing that's also really important I think is helpful for framing is that it's not just on the individual level, but public health message and also health literacy. They do talk about it, just not at the patient level, but also health, you can measure health literacy of organizations, um, which is also a a dry area in that field of, you know, you can actually try to assess your organizations health literacy and how they help patients access knowledge. So again, it's, it's you know, thinking of every patient is within a context. Every visit um, with a patient is also within a larger organizational context. So it's just sort of, you know, interesting and important to think about these levels. And we can't always intervene, um, but, you know, this is the work that we're slowly trying to do over so I need to. I I
0: love that you said that, and you kind of talked about assessing your organizational's health literacy and how maybe readable and accessible the information is. So so I feel like I need to acknowledge a little bit of irony here. <laughs> and so you know I am a non-academic, you know, just plain Jane pulmonologist in Fargo, and I have volunteered on various committees for the ASM for I mean not quite a decade. You know, it's been a you know a handful of years, and so. Over the last few years, I have, I think, finally gotten a little bit less intimidated by, you know, we have a lot of super smart people on these committees. And um, I've started pushing back a little bit because when we work on these papers together, um, I'll often say, well, how can we make this less boring? right? Because we want somebody to read it. We're working really hard to come up with a paper and we want someone to actually read it. And so I feel like sometimes we get caught up and we kind of hide information in a a ton of long words instead of just saying what we want to say. And so I, I guess I don't know why we make people work so hard to understand what we're saying. So maybe when you're done helping us make better patient-facing information, um, y'all could tackle academia.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say, Dr. Kosla, you're far from from plain Jane.
1: <laughs> but um, we make such me. a good
2: point about the um, you know j- kind of jargony. Um, I think it, sometimes it's easy as academics to kind of um, you know, Lay the jargon on thick, but there is a time and place for that, right? In our field, when we're t- speaking to our our yes. field specifically. But then, what's really cool to see is how um, sleep's leading the charge on this, and sleep advances. They're you know considering really novel ways to communicate findings, and you know maybe a visual abstract or having yes. like really incentivizing and encouraging, making it easy for investigators to tweet about their research. And then you know we're increasingly then also as academics being incentivized about you know on that um, kind of dissemination of our science piece, the altmetric score that we all get on our papers, it's usually kind of displayed on the, Journal mm. website next to your paper, and there's a score, and that quantifies how many people are talking about your paper in the press on social media, and so those little metrics that not only facilitate dissemination and communication of science, but also you know really incentivize it. You know, I've even heard recently that altmetrics have been mentioned in promotion letters.
0: Really, so, um,
2: so that's those are all I think good signs that we're. Hopefully, moving in the in the right direction.
0: Well, and I think you're right. I think one of the one of the coolest things that kind of came out um, from all these remote conferences was to have this summary slide, some visual thing, like some infographic that that just captures the essence of you know your major speaking points, and then disseminating that on social media. And I thought that was a super cool way of getting that information out there. I'm actually really encouraged. To hear that you're being incentivized to make this information more accessible. Mm, Really exciting, right? Well, thanks for understanding where I'm coming from. (laughs) So let's take a short break. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. Your membership in the AASM demonstrates your commitment to advancing sleep
2: care and enhancing sleep health to improve lives. Stay connected to the thousands of colleagues that share your passion for healthy sleep. Renew your membership today at AASM.org.
0: Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Our guests today are Dr. Rebecca Robbins and Dr. Suzanne Burdish, and we're talking about how to simplify patient educational materials. So Rebecca, I watched a clip of you from the Today Show, and I think you did a really nice job explaining sleep to the show host. You know, knowledge is is kind of useless unless we can share it. And I think we all strive to improve on our communication skills. So I'm hoping you have some tips for us.
2: Well, thank you. That's really kind. Uh, it was exciting to see the interest um, in that study that had come out recently on myths among um, about teen sleep among parents actually. Um, but maybe if I were to offer two, two suggestions, um, the first is to have your talking points ready, especially on live TV. It's, you know, the, Conversation can go any number of ways, despite <laughs> you know what you go in planning, um, you know the questions you think you're going to be asked. And so, um, what I try to do is have you know three main things, and have it really clear in my mind. Sometimes I'll also use acronyms mm. and think, okay, number one, I want to talk about why sleep is so important. Number two, what the challenges teens face. Number three, you know, here were the top myths that we found. Because um, I will say, I get you know. It, so nervous before those things. And uh, so going in uh, with, you know, a clear sense of, you know, really the main message that I want to get across uh, that can, can really help. And the second is to, you know, really just, you know, it's hard, but try to enjoy the moment. And you're really, you're just having a conversation with the host, although um, of course, much easier to say than do.
0: That's awesome. What about Susie? I'm sure you have some tips for us too.
1: Yeah. So the the tips I have, um, I you know i I echo what everything Rebecca said, but I was trying to think about how to frame it, you know, for the audience for for sleep physicians. And you know, through this work, we've developed some some information sheets and pages that offer actually some of this information. So some of the tips that we put together on these sheets for uh, practitioners who see patients with sleep apnea, um, are to one is to use the patient's words um, and not net medical jargon, really, you know, keep it simple, like you are having a conversation with a patient, you know, outside of the setting, like, how would you explain this to a family m- member? Mm. And that, you know, especially now, since we all have computers, um, usually access accessible during the visits, it also allows us the opportunity to not just use our words, but also to show graphics and visuals. You know, for example, my own clinic, when I'm first diagnosing patients with sleep apnea or even preparing them for a sleep study, I'll actually play a little video clip, you know, showing what sleep apnea is and the airway collapse, because those are really hard concepts for people to understand. And I do think it's really important and aligns with the ASM guidelines that, you know, you explain what sleep apnea is to patients. And then I think through this work, two things that I've really learned and implemented in my own practice um, was to try to give patients, um, you know, give them information in really small pieces. Don't overwhelm them with a ton ton of information at, uh, at once. And then lastly, so this is actually the fourth tip we have listed, is then to check for understanding throughout this visit. And this is actually used throughout different types of uh, fields of medicine. And And it can be called something like the teach back method is one method to do this, to check for understanding. And it's not enough to say, you know, did you understand what I said, or this makes sense? So the recommendation is really um, to ask them, really to check yourself and how well you explain it. It's not it's not really a test for patients. It's not to put them on the, the spot, but to really know, did I explain this well to the patient in clear, simple language that they can understand? So an example is, you know, when you're telling a patient, you know, about how to use their PAC device for the first time, you could say, I wanna make sure my instructions about how to use CPAP are clear to you. Would you mind telling me in your own words, how will you use PAP?
2: Oh. And then they
1: can give you a brief explanation. And so you can really understand and if they're missing part of it or they lost part of the process, then you take a step back and you re-explain it to them. Again, in simple, easy to use words, and then also use other things like written materials as you're able to, to supplement that information as well.
0: So that's what I'm I'm thinking too. So that's great about that sort of one-on-one time with your patient, right? But how should we be sort of critically thinking about our patient-facing educational content? So so our websites and our pamphlets and our social media and, and
2: that sort of thing. I could um, share some of the things that we um, we you know recommended in that ATS Scholar publication where we evaluated some of the available OSA um, interventions and education materials. And it boils down to a couple of things. If you're thinking about public facing materials and coming back to that idea of the graph that models on the x-axis, you know your reach, and then the y, the precision or the tailoring of the information and making it you know personally relevant. Mm-hmm. So of course, if you're trying to reach a lot of people, you can't achieve message tailoring. It's going to be a more, um, it has to be kind of an undifferentiated um, approach that you take. But there are a couple general principles. Number one, generally, by and large, the population has low levels of literacy. Um, Susie mentioned a couple of these because there are kind of a couple different forms of literacy and, and numeracy is one such component. And generally, even highly educated people generally prefer not to receive information in the form of Statistics, you know, numbers, fractions, but I think in science, we do a lot of that. We say, you know, one in 10 people and, or, you know, 75%. And sometimes those can have kind of an adverse um, impact because if you hear, okay, 75% of people or 80% aren't adherent to their OSA treatment. And then as a patient, like, oh my gosh, no one's doing this. Why should I? And so that actually has kind of a reverse um, impact is kind of one other aspect of, um, you know, really emphasizing numbers. Visuals are, are, you know, wherever possible, try to replace numbers and um, text information with visuals because they're much easier uh, for us to understand and then act on. Um, Thinking through also the kind of how marketers describe information, like use alliteration, come up with fun things from ways to communicate information instead of saying, you know, you must use your device every night, like try to find a way to make it a little catchy. Um, and then reducing, we kind of talked about moving numbers and letters into visuals, but just reducing text wherever possible mm. and making text bigger. So those are just um, a couple things. Uh, Susie might have some more suggestions.
1: So I, I was just going to sort of reiterate, um, again, this is a little bit redundant from what Rebecca said, but some of the points highlighted um, in some of the communication tools that Rebecca used to analyze the, the 20 publicly available websites. So as she already commented on, you know, making sure that information's clear, that it's chunked using visuals, mm-hmm. um, you know, in easy to describe language. You know, often we see some of the the websites just have a ton of text. You know, and that's overwhelming for people to have. Um, you know, and trying to keep it interactive and informative um, as as possible. But I think some of the assessments that she used in her paper, you know, are good good guidelines or goalposts um, for for what to achieve for that information when you're evaluating it for patient, you know, for patients. Yeah. So when
0: you're talking Mm -hmm. about a visual, are you talking about like when we talk about 80% of OSA is undiagnosed? So instead of putting a big 80 out there, are you talking about having like a circle that's sort of 80% full, or are you talking about just eliminating the number completely?
2: Well, great question. And in that statistic, I... I was trying to uh, probably poorly <laughs> make the point that um, <laughs> be careful about the numbers you choose, mm. number one, because in that case, that actually social norms non-use mm. of treatment. And so um, so that was kind of a, maybe a separate point that I was also um, mm. trying to make. But if you are thinking about communicating percentages, choosing them wisely and maybe one or two, not a problem to have in, you know, numbers written out, but then yes, if you have, um, you know, moving that one of those, if you want to display a couple percentages, moving one into maybe a set of um, little stick figures, and then two of the five have, you know, X symptoms to communicate um, proportions instead of just, you know, a bunch of statistics.
1: I was just going to chime in that, yeah, as far as specifically for, you know, communicating risk. You know, there's a whole field devoted to this. And I think the latest, as Rebecca already mentioned, are the icons of people. So Mm -hmm. 80%, you know, you have 10 little icons of people, and then you highlight eight of them, because that's what people understand. If you think to, you know, it's commonly used. I think the one that pops into my mind is, you know, when you're discussing mammography with patients, and you Mm -hmm. see the array of, you know, 100 women or 1,000 women, you know, how many people need mammograms, in order to detect one cancer versus how many mammograms to save one life
0: what a good point and i think we're all now familiar with those little stick figures or icons from covid right that out of 100 in the in the hospital that this many are in the icu so i think i think you're right that's a really good way of 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 portraying those numbers so This is more than just making sure it's sort of at a fifth through eighth grade level, it sounds like
2: there are yep. a couple other things to keep in mind. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, you know, we, we forgot to mention that. So we, we talked about, uh, numeracy, but you know, again, literacy, not only health literacy, which is defined as we talked about as this, you know, knowledge, but also ability and beliefs that one can act on that knowledge. But, um, this is kind of down to, to literacy. And so that is another important, uh, tenet of clear communication. The recommendation is actually, you know, fourth, fifth, sixth reading level, as you talked oh, about is it? Oh, so wow. really boiling things down and, um, Um, one way that can be helpful is write what you want to say and then put it down and come back and keep it each round trying to make it more accessible to someone who has no idea about (laughs) your field or experience um, with the behavior that you're you're recommending. The the other piece that um, Susie and I did with the last project uh, we've been talking about, uh, one of our publications, but just other materials we've developed is talk to patients, Mm -hmm. develop your materials, and then take that what we call wireframe or draft and give it to a patient and mm-hmm. ask them. And there's actually kind of a whole method around this of kind of user testing and user-centered design and where you just recruit actual patients with a condition and you ask them really kind of open-ended questions. You know, what do you like about this? What isn't clear about this to you? What would you improve about this?
0: I think that's that's a super important point.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, on our committee, we
0: have patient representatives And when we talk, like, for example, our committee um, took a look at all the content on sleepeducation.org and kind of updated it and revamped it. And having that sort of run through the committee members who were patients was very helpful. I like their Mm -hmm. feedback was, was really important. Oh,
2: gold. Right. Mm -hmm. And one other thing to keep in mind is kind of making sure that you have new patients coming through those roles because community Mm -hmm. advisory board and patient advocates are so vital, but then the irony is they almost, you know, through these roles often become so educated that they're, you know, also proselytizing and so knowledgeable and the principle, you know, from psychology of it's just so hard to remember what it's like to not know. Well, that's exactly right? it. I was going to mm-hmm. say our
0: patient representatives are actually really pretty, very, I mean, very engaged and very knowledgeable. So it may be a little bit skewed as well. Totally. So in, in preparation for our conversation today, um, as sort of a like a non-academic, I, I learned that the flesh Kincaid and the simple measures of gobbledygook tools exist, A.
2: <laughs> and that they are useful. But
0: you know, would be the best name. <laughs> it was a I I honestly thought it, it was like somebody making fun of the name and then I, I googled it and I was like, oh no way, that's a thing. Okay. Totally. <laughs> Susan so, and I had some fun when we were analyzing <laughs> the scientific
2: gobbledygook. Right? Well, and so <laughs> when
0: we are Better. like, aren't we always going to be high on those scales? Because part of the formulation sh- formula is based on syllables per word, right? So apnea is a five-letter word, but it has three
2: syllables. So is that factored in? That's a really good question. And maybe there's a way to think, and of course, this isn't going to be always possible, but taking the condition and breaking it down into what people know it to be. Um, you know, stopping breathing or, mm-hmm. um, and of course you, you know, want to toe the line between improving literacy, you know, supporting patients and self-efficacy and understanding, but also being correct. Mm-hmm. So it's always a dance, but one way might be to think, okay, how might we change this slightly to, you know, to be a phrase or a word that patients really identify and understand
1: so as, as part of the, the project, um, the reason, part of the reason why we did this survey of, of available resources is we had a project. We were tasked to disseminate evidence-based information specifically around CPAP use for patients with sleep apnea. And we developed a sleep apnea toolkit for patients. Mm. And the very first patient sheet we made is called, What is Sleep Apnea?, and the first sentence of that is sleep apnea is a condition in which the back of the airway collapses or becomes blocked on and off during sleep. And with that, we put a graphic of, a, of an airway and marked the graphic. I mean, I, ideally, it may have even been a video because I think that's even easier to see mm-hmm. the collapse of the airway. So, you know, again, to answer your question, you know, sleep apnea, sleep apnea, it's hard to call it anything else. Right. Right. <laughs> it's the diagnosis name and apnea is, you know, not a colloquial term by any means, but, you know, we just carefully defined it and we didn't just use our words because, again, as you mentioned before, it's not just getting the reading level down and making the words simple. It's really, it's really about understanding because you can read the words, but it may, if it's not clear, mm-hmm. um, you understand it and you use graphics and visuals and repeat the information to hone in on that point. So again, sometimes there's words or phrases that we're stuck with because it is medical jargon that we just, there is no other words or way to say it, right. but then everything else we write in the way we contextualize that information is really made as simply. And Rebecca and I, you know, when we put these worksheets together and put the messages together, we look at every word multiple times and send it to patients and send it with staff and, you know, try to keep things making as simple as possible in the easiest, clearest language that we can use.
0: So then, once we've done all of this work creating this educational content, how do we assess the effectiveness of our educational materials?
1: From the clinical perspective, again, just from a wearing my physician hat and not my scientist hat, you know, it's really as I mentioned to you before you know, really using like a teach back type of method or or assessing understanding from your own patient one-on-one during the clinical encounter. Um, You know, you have the materials, you assess their understanding, you see how they're using it. Again, that likens to, you know, what we might do with an early user testing, but one-on-one with the patient in the clinical arena. And again, you know, you know, looking to broaden the evidence base, then there might be larger testing and looking at downstream effects, not just of the materials itself and um, effect on self-efficacy and understanding, but also looking at, you know, our patients who get a certain set of messaging more likely to use their CPAP, for example. Mm -hmm. And there, so it's a series of development of the work, making sure the messaging is clear, but then, you know, you need to set the effectiveness onto what the clinical outcome is. So there's, there's a series of different effectiveness measures along the pathway. So not only do they need to sort of
0: digest the information, but they need to do something as a result of.
1: That's that's what we're working for. And again, some of this is is steps to get to that mm. ultimate goal because that is our goal, right? That more patients use their CPAP machines more successfully.
2: That's such a good point. Um, And this discussion of kind of, you know, what are we changing and how do we change it? Or, well, we've talked about, you know, how ideally we we change um, so far. And and then how do we evaluate the change and how it differs along the spectrum? Um, I love those points. And thinking about kind of when we take an intervention, we take it into a community setting. Mm -hmm. Um, If it's early stage, what we probably want to focus on is... Kind of the psychosocial beliefs about the behavior, and how our intervention has changed how patients think about the behavior or the recommendation, and realizing that there are also all of these intervening variables of you know where do you live, Mm -hmm. Um, you know what is your you know what are your resources, all of those factors that of course the behavioral intervention can't change. So if we look at the things that we can, it's you know your self-efficacy, your attitudes towards treatment, your social norm perceptions to people that you love, you know, think you should do this, um, you know, those kinds of social norms or other people like you doing this stuff or what we mean by norms. And so you can really actually model all of those different beliefs. And then you can look before and how maybe those beliefs weren't supportive of the behavior or, an in- or better yet, an intention to behave because there's this um, kind of whole literature in the behavioral intervention space on it's so hard for a pamphlet, a flyer to change a behavior. And if you Mm -hmm. think about it, that's hard. That's a big leap. But what we can change is what people think. And of course, their knowledge, their attitudes, their self-efficacy, all those good things that then create this kind of fuzzy trace game plan in the person, community, et cetera, on changing. And then hopefully that supports future change. So what do you think is something actionable? What is an actionable
0: change based on our conversation today that we can take home to our
1: institutions? So I think for physicians in in the clinic, seeing patients, it's to think about these very concepts when you're discussing, you know, um sleep and sleep disorders and treatment with their patients and really think about how do I communicate the information the patients need to know? Am I using simple language? Am I using clear information? Mm-hmm. What other resources am I using to support the information? And does the, the patient really understand, you know what I'm recommending for their care? and what can I do to better support the patient and really understanding what they need to, to do? because again, every sleep disorder really um, requires, the patient to be able to make some sort of behavioral change, whether it's using PAP every night, um, you know, taking a medication every day. And, you know, all of these tools we've talked about are ways to help patients be successful, you know, ultimately to better treat their sleep disorders. Um, Mm -hmm. We, you know, I'll put a plug in, we developed a series of patient information sheets based on this work um, that are freely and publicly available, both English and Spanish. Um, Again, the focus is really on sleep apnea, patients with sleep apnea, focusing on pap therapy, and they could be found um, at myapne.org under the resources tab. Um, There's also some information for clinicians that we've talked about, including how to communicate, um, how to improve your communication specifically during sleep telemedicine visits that, you know, we can recommend to use. We hope they're helpful. Um, But again, we made them into simple information sheets. um, So they're readily accessible, easy to understand, and also have links to places where we think you can get other reliable information, both for patients and clinicians. So
2: any final thoughts? Yes, in addition to all those great things, we talked about a couple principles from communication and um... Health literacy and um, all of these these wonderful topics, and in different contexts, in the kind of one-on-one context, and the development of interventions that then go out into the community. Um, but I, I just love Susie's comments on um, thinking about how those principles could apply across those domains. And we talked about you know heuristic and user testing with uh, patients before disseminating you know materials into um, larger audiences and assessing clarity and understandability of um, communication. So it's exciting to, or, you know, cool to think about how those apply in the mm-hmm. um, doctor-patient encounter. You know, am I being clear? Is my information understandable? And does it support the desired outcome? Thanks
0: for helping us understand where patients are coming from and making sense of sleep apnea. I know that the AASM has seen your research and is taking it to heart in developing new patient educational resources as part of the CDC grant for an OSA awareness project.
1: Well, that's wonderful to hear. Um, thanks so much for having us today to talk about this very important uh, topic. That is really exciting.
2: Thank you again, Dr. Kostler. It's Really exciting to be with you.
0: Thanks for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, email us at podcast at I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla,
1: encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.